Hi, this is Robert Fleming of the Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues, our weekly podcast with me and Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Elizabeth, welcome back. Thanks, Robert. Let's talk today about beneficiary deeds and specific distributions, particularly. We've talked about beneficiary deeds before and uh, several times. It's a it's a wonderful device in available in Arizona and some other states, but reminder, we really only know Arizona law, so don't generalize what we say to your state if you're not in Arizona. But last week I had a client who really um, reminded me of the problem with beneficiary deeds if you have a specific bequest in mind as well. Have you seen this, Elizabeth? I have, Robert, and one of the challenging things with estate planning clients can be when people are so fixated on their stuff, whether it be an IRA, a house, a collection of coins, their Chase checking account, people end up thinking that the way to distribute their estate is by making what could be entirely specific gifts. So my house divided between three of my children, my Chase checking account to my great niece, Thelma, my coin collection to Thelma's niece, Tina, and all of a sudden you realize that your client, what that person has in mind is a specific distribution for just about everything that they can think of in their estate. And and that can be really problematic, Robert, not only because it can be difficult to be so precise, but also it's it's challenging to get people to think about the administration of an estate. So having a piece of real estate, for instance, um, be distributed among multiple beneficiaries, either through a trust or a beneficiary deed, that raises all sorts of questions around, well, who's responsible for paying for the house? And if everybody's equally responsible, how does that work? Yeah, that's a, it can create an administrative nightmare, as you suggest. If you have, say, four beneficiaries who are gonna share everything equally, and you make them the beneficiaries on a beneficiary deed, well, you just created a a de facto partnership. They now have to get together to decide whether they're going to sell the property or improve it, how they're going to get money. And, oh, by the way, you've done beneficiary designations on all your accounts. Where are they going to get the money to do the cleanup, even if they just want to flip it around and, and sell it shortly after your death? And that's actually the the, the, related to the problem that my client last week had, he was very fixated on probate avoidance. And so he had beneficiary designations on all of his accounts. And he said, you know, I'm leaving all of my estate to this friend. Uh, and uh, so I want a beneficiary deed leaving the, the house to the friend as well. Uh, and then I looked at the rest of his wishes. He wanted to leave $10,000 to another friend and $3,000 to a charitable organization. And He had some specific bequests in mind. Well, where are those going to come from if everything that you leave has beneficiary designations on it? So people get, as you say, very fixated on their things and on avoiding probate and focusing on where the things are going. And they don't sometimes step back and take the larger view and say, oh, I have this notion that I would like to leave a little cash to an organization, to a charitable organization. I'm not gonna create a $10,000 checking account so that they can inherit that. Uh, And then how would we spend down 
if I need money to take care of me at the end of my life, how are we going to spend down the various accounts when each one goes to a different... Is there a solution for this guy, Elizabeth? Well, Robert, one of the solutions is to just get a correct inventory. <laughs> because that's a that's a difficult thing, as people sometimes keep remembering assets. They never really finalize the inventory of what their estate is. But it is useful sometimes to have a trust because things can kind of pool inside a trust being the vehicle to make a larger distribution. But generally speaking, whether we're using a trust or we're using a will, I really like looking at percentages and allocations and percentages. I think that is oftentimes way easier to do and administer than having specific gifts. The challenge, of course, is for people to just re-engineer their thinking because that can be very, very hard when somebody is fixated on a specific gift and a value that they've assigned to that gift. I think you've said the word that is probably most important for people who have at all complicated estate plans, and that is trust. A living trust is the way to to think about getting your, your goals accomplished. The problem with approaching that for yourself is that most people I talk to think they have simple estate plans. And what they really mean is they have simple estates. Those That's a different thing from a simple estate plan. If you say, and clients do this all the time in initial interviews, I know you've had this experience, Elizabeth. Well, I want to leave everything to Jane. Okay, great. That's easy. And I start writing and they say, well, except for I do want to leave a little bit to the woman who took care of me when I was growing up and she's still the housekeeper at my house and I want to leave a little bit to her. Oh, okay. So I start to write that. Oh, and uh, you know, I kind of wanted to leave a little bit to charity. How much should I leave to charity? And right away, their estate plan is now no longer simple, though their estate may be simple. Their estate plan is not simple. That kind of person is probably looking at a living trust in order to make sure that all of the resources are available to fund the, the percentage shares or the, or the, uh, the, the uh, fractional shares or the dollar amounts, even if that's what they want to do. If they want to leave $10,000 exactly to a person, then that's going to be easier to do with a living trust. And I think, Robert, when we sit down and, and really walk people through their estate plans, what strikes me is is once we've heard what they have to say and how they want to engineer things, how the idea of simplicity, they get in the weeds pretty quickly. But once they start to read the documents and see that we use plain language when we describe different distributions, oftentimes people have a little bit easier um, easier ability to just kind of let go of their preconceived notions around direct specific gifts. What I mean by that is it's a whole lot easier to see how our recommendation works if you can actually look at it on paper. Sometimes just sitting in a conference room talking about this um, is hard for people to envision. So that's one of the reasons the drafting process is so important. I absolutely agree, Elizabeth, that we send drafts out to people. We want them to mark them up. We want them to correct the things we might have gotten wrong, but also to show us the things that they've rethought after they after they went through the documents. And we hope that they do. People who, who come back to us and say, ah, I realize that uh, there's no resource that's going to pay the, the specific bequest that I wanted to leave to this charitable organization or to my friend. We love those folks because they proved that they read the documents and they thought about the practical effect. We really want people to engage with us, to communicate and go back and forth. 
And it's totally normal for people to come in with one idea and rethink it during our initial consultation and and then maybe rethink it another time or two before they're ready to finalize their drafts. I mean, this is very much a process. We don't expect people to come into us and have everything squared away. We're here to help guide the conversation and facilitate and also contribute some ideas of our own if that's helpful to you. That's really the lesson from our comments today. We want this to be a a conversation with our clients about how to accomplish their goals or how to figure out that maybe their goals need some small adjustment in order to to be uh, to be more easily accommodated. Well, I'm Robert Fleming. I've been talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. We do this uh, podcast every week, or at least we try to. Sometimes we miss because we got caught up doing something talking to clients maybe, but uh, please join us for Elder Law Issues again next week. We'll talk to you then.